How many of you compartmentalize your life? Like you have your work life, you have your school life if you're there, you have, you have your friends, and, you know, and you, some of your friends you don't want to see the other ones of your friends because they might get into a fight. Compartmentalizing is a human thing to do. It's dangerous, though, when you begin to compartmentalize your faith. When all of a sudden you realize that, okay, I have my work life here, my family life here, my God life over here. Why is, why is that a problem? Well, watch this. I, I, I did a little math this week. If the average life expectancy in America is 78 and a half years old, and, and you, you give eight hours a day, about a third of that uh, spent sleeping, so you take away uh, 230,000 or so, you're left with about 370,000 hours. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, 459,000 hours of awake time. Now, if you've worked for 44 years of your life for about 40 hours a week on the average, these are all averages, uh, that's about 88,000 that you have to take away from there. So now I've taken away your sleep hours and your work hours, and now you've got 371,000 hours of your life. Okay? Now, let's say that you've been involved in a church for 40 years, and let's say on the average you give about four hours a week to God. Uh, maybe Bible studies, uh, church definitely, maybe quiet times, whatever. And, and if we throw in some hours of going to retreats or summer camps as a kid, maybe, uh, what, what you're looking at is maybe 8,500, and that, that's a low number, that's about four hours a week, 8,500 devoted to the sacred. Now, some of you say, I have at least eight hours every week or 10 hours. Okay, so we can even go up to 20,000 if you want to. But for the sake of, uh, of my, my illustration, 85 hours dedicated to the sacred, that leaves just over 360,000 hours that many people believe God doesn't care about. 360,000 hours of your life that many people just feel, feel like, well, God, as long as I'm not doing one of the big sins, you know, as long as I'm not cheating on my wife, as long as I'm not killing people, then, then 360,000 hours of my life, God just doesn't care about. But folks, that is just not correct. The, the separation between uh, sacred and, and uh, secular, that's not a, a God thing. That's a man-made thing. Because God never separated the sacred from the secular. The truth is that God cares about every part of our lives. Every hour. Every day. Every year. Now, the next several weeks in the study on the Sermon on the Mount, where we're looking at God's upside-down kingdom, we're getting into these commands of Jesus. Commands, yes, commands. So you say, well, wait a second, we're under grace. But, folks, Jesus did give his disciples commands. And, and, and you might think, well, it's, I have a decent church attendance record. Um, I, I haven't killed anybody. And so I, I'm, I, I think I'm okay with God right now. But again, God doesn't separate religious life from secular life. And he, it's great that you haven't killed anybody. Thank you for that, by the way. But it's not just about the biggies. It's not just about Sunday morning or your Bible studies. God says, listen, I want not just the biggies. I want the little ones too. I don't want just Sunday. I want Monday through Saturday. I, I want your entire life. It's, it's not just the actions 
that God is concerned about that we're going to find out from the Sermon on the Mount in these next uh, several sections, in these next several weeks. You're going to find out that it's our heart. And I love how uh, our songs reflected the heart and and, uh, Troy's words reflected on the heart because it's the heart that matters to God. It's not just avoiding the big sins, but that we come to embrace kingdom life as fully as we can, not just towing the line, but really immersing ourselves into how God would want us to live. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to encourage you to wear your steel-toed boots because I'm going to be stepping on some toes, okay? And I want you to protect yourself. Uh, Toes will be stepped on, I promise. But I also want you to understand that we're raising the bar. We're raising the bar on our spiritual life. Because where Jesus is going next on the Sermon on the Mount connects the Old Testament Mosaic Law with commands found in the New Testament. There are commands. And and, and yes, we live in grace, but we also have these commands. And so we live in the tension between those two things. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Just know this. The more that you can focus on your heart on cleaning up the inside of your life, then the more the, desire, the, the more the actions will kind of fall into place. The more you can experience what life is like where you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then it's not going to be about just checking off the boxes so that you can make sure that you're okay once you get to heaven at the end of your life. That said now, Jesus begins with a problem that seems to be pervasive in our world. It's definitely something that far too many of us can identify with, and that is what comes out of our mouth. Okay, so Jesus, it's, it's really cool, because starting with our mouth and, and, and talking about a bunch of other things in the next few weeks, Jesus is hitting the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. It's pretty cool, uh, this, this parallel between Moses and Jesus, between the, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Why does Jesus begin here? Well, because if words could kill, we would all be guilty of murder, wouldn't we? If words could kill, wouldn't we all be guilty? See, Jesus is trying to connect his commands with what people had already had known, the the Ten Commandments. That's why he's going to begin to say, you have heard that it was said, talking about the Old Testament, But I say to you, he's going to raise the bar as to how we treat each other and how we come before our God. He's suturing together the sacred and what we would call the secular. He's bringing about this reality of God's desire for our entire lives to worship him. I must guard against divorcing my actions from my attitudes. Because those attitudes can, if left unchecked, lead to those actions. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 still. We're we're crawling through, and that's fine. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 21 and following today. So Matthew 5, if you'll turn there, Jesus says this in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Is Jesus 
literally saying what we think he's saying, that if you're angry at somebody, that's just the same as killing somebody? That anger is the sin? No, no, no. Jesus got angry, right? Remember the time that he cleared out the, the marketplace that was going on in the Gentile court? where they were taking away Gentile worship and they were selling these animals for a profit and and he cleared it single-handedly, made a whip, one guy, overturns tables, money flying everywhere, animals, it was chaotic. So if you're saying that being angry is a sin, well, no, because Jesus got angry and he never sinned. So there must be a sort of anger that Jesus is talking about here that we don't understand. Paul tries to clarify it for us in Ephesians 4, where he says, in your anger, do not sin. Now, that that means that you can be angry and not sin, but there you can also be angry and sin, and that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. And then he says this, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and give the devil a foothold. There's some clarification right there. Because understand that this command was given in the days when when the sun went down, guess what? You went to bed. You you didn't stay up watching 2020 or or Dateline or or, or anything like that. Day was done. A, A new day essentially in the Jewish mind had begun. And so Paul was saying, don't let too much time go by before you deal with things. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here because the word that he uses for being angry here on the Sermon on the Mount is essentially anger that has gotten so out of hand that it has set up camp and it's now squatting on your property. And it won't go away because it's there to stay. Unresolved anger. Here's the principle. Unresolved anger is not good and it's like murder because it'll suck the life out of you and it will dehumanize the person at whom you are, mad, at whom you are angry, who you're mad at. <laughs> it, it, it will suck the life out of you. It will make you turn to your beast nature rather than your God nature. And it will dehumanize the person that you're mad at as well. Jesus goes on to say, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish um, Supreme Court. And then he says, but if anybody says you fool, we'll be in danger of the fires of hell. This last Monday morning in our men's Bible study in Prineville, we, we kind of struggled with, well, what's the difference between raka and fool? Why is fool so much more of a problem than raka? Well, raka means empty-headed. Empty-headed. It, it's, it's like if you're uh, out with your friend, he does something dumb, and you go, oh, you dummy. Well, in the Jewish mind, that's insulting somebody's intelligence, and you could actually be brought before the, the Jewish court and, and be tr- fined for calling somebody stupid. Okay, well, but he did something stupid. Yes, he did something stupid. Raka, empty head. What Jesus then is saying is that but if you're going to call somebody a fool, what you have done is you have played judge, jury, and executioner, and you have proclaimed on that person that they are stupid not just one time, but they are irredeemably stupid which means now you don't have to deal with them, you don't have to work with them, you can get them out of your life because they are really stupid. Uh, it's, it's the same word that we get the word moron, by the way, if you, if you look at it in Greek. So it's, it carries the sense that the, the person is not just did something dumb, it's like they are unredeemable. Folks, 
it's hard to show Jesus' love to somebody that you've written off as somebody who can't understand or get their act together. It's very interesting that Jesus even brings about the whole idea of fire coming in as he talks about the, uh, the, the, the fires of hell. He uses the word Gehenna there, which was a, a place outside of, of Jerusalem, a physical place outside of uh, Jerusalem, where a garbage heap was there and it was continually burning. Anything that you would throw out there would be destroyed. Sometimes they would actually take enemies of God who had been defeated in battle and instead of giving them a proper burial... They would throw them into Gehenna and let them burn without any kind of honor in in their death. And so they would have an eternal punishment there in the valley of Hinnom. But he's talking about this fire. And I, I, I find that very interesting because James picks up on that in his letter. In James 3, he says the tongue, again, what we say, the tongue is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. Because it corrupts the whole body and it sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. What James is saying here is that destroying people with your words, that action is straight out of hell. It is straight out of hell. Words can kill. It can destroy someone's self-worth. It can drive wedges between family members. It crushes spirits. It can take away somebody's confidence. It can drive people to despair in their life. Angry words seem to last, uh, have a more lasting impression than even good words. It's hard to take back angry words. It's hard to, to erase the scars they leave. I've been told that it takes 10 compliments to balance out one cruel jab. In my experience, that's a really low number 10. It's it's usually a whole lot more that you have to say to somebody after you've zinged them pretty good. See, we can be so careless with our tongues. We can lash out without even considering its long-term effect. And we say, it's no big deal. It's not like I pulled out a gun and shot him. That's not what Jesus says. See, James says, with our tongues we praise God, and yet we turn around and curse those who have been made in God's image. And all of a sudden we realize, uh uh-oh, one of these things that we thought wasn't a biggie. Yeah, killing people, that's the biggie. I shouldn't kill people. Doesn't matter what I say to them. Uh Uh-uh, maybe we need to start to expand our understanding of what that biggie really is. This one is so big, in fact, that it affects our worship. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, this is an offering to God, coming to God's altar and, and putting your offering there. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Now you might say, well, yeah, but what, what if they don't accept my apology? Or, or what, if, what if they don't want to be made right? What, what, what if, what, what if uh, they, they don't want to change their ways? Huh? I should stay mad at them. I should still be able to have angry words until they change. Romans 12, 18, one of my very favorite verses says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Which means, folks, it doesn't matter what the other person is going to do or not. 
God cares about you and what your heart is like. Failure in relationships, folks, is a spiritual issue. For us to pretend that everything is okay in our relationship with God while we are harboring anger and resentment towards somebody else, that's deceitful. It's deceiving even our own selves. That's why it's so critical for us as we live in God's upside-down kingdom to not harbor this anger because it's not showing love. Instead of running away from the confrontation, we need to run to the fire in order to put that bad boy out. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The point that Jesus is making is very clear. You need to take care of it ASAP. He says, if you owe somebody something, you better pay it ASAP as soon as you possibly can. Well, what do you owe somebody that you're upset at? Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love. That's what you owe the person that you're mad at. You owe them love. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you owe them love, the the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery and do not murder and do not steal and do not covet. Whatever other command there may be is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We owe a debt of love. And we don't just owe it to the other person. We owe that debt to God. And it's payable to those around us. So don't put it off. Don't hold back. Don't give excuses that you're too busy, too tired, too hard, or their offense is too great because somewhere, somehow, you will pay. Somewhere, you'll pay. Relationships are damaged. Uh, Relationships with our spouse, with our kids, with the people at work, whatever, maybe even here at church. More than anybody else in the world, Jesus' followers are called to be the ones who are peacemakers. They should be the ones who care about the health of the relationships. We should understand that by playing judge, jury, and executioner ourselves, we might be taking the opportunity away from God to actually change the person that we're angry with. Right now, Gabe, why don't you and your team come on back up? Next week, I want to invite you guys back uh, and maybe bring some people with you because there's another side to this coin of anger uh, this is about if you're angry at somebody else because they've done something to you. Well, what happens when you've done something to them? And what I found, I, and I've wanted to do this sermon for a long, long, long time. Christians, above anybody else, we should know how to say, I'm sorry. We should know the art of apology more than anybody else, and yet we don't. We, we hide. We, we, we don't want to go there to say, I'm sorry. So I, I, if you want to learn how to say, I'm sorry... In a Christian way, I invite you to come back and hang out with us next week. I'm going to give you some steps from God's word, what Jesus has said. But as we close today, I want you to imagine, and I was going to do this, and then I thought, eh, maybe, maybe it would not be as, as good as just in your imagination. So in your imagination, picture if I started to preach this sermon and I had a balloon. And I started to blow into that balloon, and then I tell you a little bit about, oh, the, uh, the negative truth that says resentment is when you take poison and hope the other person dies. 
And I blow up the balloon a little bit more. And then I, I say, you know what? Unresolved anger builds up in you. And, and if you don't let that out, you're going to hurt yourself. And I continue to blow up the balloon. And I keep talking. And I, I pause and I keep blowing up the balloon and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon it's, it's obstructing my vision. And, 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 and you're probably out there getting a little anxious going, I don't like it when balloons make loud noises. Well, why would it make a loud noise? Well, because I'm putting too much pressure inside of this balloon. And if I kept doing that, we would have quite the loud bang. And I'd frighten some of you as I would lash out, make that big loud noise. You might be afraid of me, afraid of what I'm getting ready to do. But what happens to that balloon? See, I love you. And I love serving as your pastor. And I don't want to see happen to you what happened to that balloon. Because that balloon is no longer good for what it's meant to do. Because it has been shredded. That's what your anger will do to you. Much less what it's going to do to the other person. So I, I'm one whom standing here saying that God can forgive. And God can clean you from this anger issue. Why? Because that was my issue. No, not you, Trey. You would, no. My daughter still deals with psychological trauma that I put her through because of my fits of rage when I would just blow up. That kills, folks. Anger, hurtful words can kill. And yet God is bigger than our sins. And praise God, if you would just say, I want to be made right in this area. Folks, let us know. Let us know. We have leadership here who loves you, who love you, who would love to come alongside of you and begin to teach you how to let that pressure out before your balloon pops. All right? Would you stand with me? I want to pray with you right now and and then encourage you that this would not just be a, a sermon of nice words and good concepts, but that you would actually make some steps in order for God to help you find freedom from that corrosive anger and hatred. <clears throat> so let me pray. God, I, I do thank you so much for your love and for the commands that you give to us. Lord, they are not burdensome commands. They're actually for our benefit and for the benefit of your kingdom, for your people, for your family. Lord, forgive us. We are a people who let our words get away from us. And Lord, we are all guilty of being angry in a, in a bad way, in a sinful way. So forgive us for that. Some of us, though, Lord, we have a problem with that. That's one of our traps. So Lord, I would pray that you would stir in the lives of the people who need to, to reach out to the church leadership, uh, maybe this week or next week, and say, you know, that was me. And Lord, I would pray that we'd be able to look to your word and your spirit to know what it means to be purified from that particular sin. Lord, cleanse us this this year. As we approach a new year, I would pray that we would celebrate the grace that we have, knowing that there's nothing that we can do to make you love us more. But Lord, I would also pray that we would grab a hold of that holiness that you give to us, the holiness that you would want from us, that we might live the kind of life that you have called us to live in righteousness, because we are saved. Lord, we love you so much, and I do thank you so much for the people who have gathered here and for those who are watching at home. God, may you uh, shine your light through them this week. I pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed and said, amen.